Hi, welcome to Come Follow Me with Brie, episode 5, and this is covering 3 Nephi, chapters 5 through 7. Now you might be thinking that this is not the chapters that we're on this week, and you're right. (laughs) But I couldn't bear to move on because I just, there's just so much good stuff in 5 through 7 and I didn't make it there. And one of the coolest things I've experienced since starting to do this is what is described in Alma 32, 28, where it says the word is good for it beginneth to enlarge my soul. Yea, it beginneth to enlighten my understanding. Yea, and it beginneth to be delicious to me. And I love the Book of Mormon. I loved it before I've started to do this, but I can see what the Lord is doing in my heart as I do this podcast. It is becoming so delicious to me. I love studying it. I sit here in my bed, which is usually where I prepare, and I read the scriptures and I am just crying because it is so delicious to me. I would love it if you would forgive any faults in this episode because I am just going to record it in one take and I'm not going to go back through and try and delete any ums or so's or whatever um, because I want to go hang out with my husband. But I want to get this recorded and out to you guys because it is so good. I want to add a little bit on to what we were talking about in the last episode When the Gadiantans came to battle against the Nephites, the Nephites cried unto the Lord for strength and protection. And it reminded me of a song that I love. And while I'm reading this, I want you to think of your trials past and present and how those trials work in conjunction with the Lord's plan and his love for you. The song is called Blessings. It was written by Laura Story. We pray for blessings. We pray for peace, comfort for family, protection while we sleep. We pray for healing, for prosperity. We pray for your mighty hand to ease our suffering. And all the while, you hear each spoken need, yet love is way too much to give us lesser things. Because what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? What if the trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? We pray for wisdom, your voice to hear. We cry in anger when we cannot feel you near. We doubt your goodness. We doubt your love. As if every promise from your word is not enough. All the while, you hear each desperate plea and long that we'd have faith to believe. When when friends betray us, when darkness seems to win, we know that pain reminds this heart that this is not our home. What if my greatest disappointments or the aching of this life is the revealing of a greater thirst this world can't satisfy? What if the trials of this life, the rain, the storms, the hardest nights, are your mercies in disguise? Remember the famine that Nephi asked the Lord to bring to humble the people? Those trials are what brought them back to the Lord. So what if your trials can bring you as close to him as possible? Because when we experience experience things that humble us and hopefully bring us to rely on the Lord, when we call on him for strength and protection, we are learning heaven. We are learning to be submissive to his will. We are learning to have faith that his plan is wise, even when we can't understand. 
I have this visual that I like to imagine. I imagine that there is a rope between the Lord and I, and each time I rely on him or pray, read scriptures, be humble, serve others, each time I do those things that I am adding a small strand to strengthen my rope. And as I add a strand, it is growing stronger and stronger, and I'm pulling closer to him on that rope with each action. I even like to imagine that perhaps the strength of my rope and the closeness I am able to achieve is a real physical connection that will determine my physical closeness to his, to his presence in eternity. So the united Nephites and Lamanites defeat the Gadiantans in the great and terrible battle. The Nephites pursued them to the wilderness and they didn't spare any of them. And the remainder didn't dare come directly into battle with them but they had another plan. In chapter 4, verse 16, it says, And in the twenty and first year they did not come up to battle, but they came upon all sides to lay siege round about the people of Nephi. For they did suppose that if they should cut off the people of Nephi from their lands and should hem them in on every side, and if they should cut them off from their outward privileges, that they could cause them to yield themselves up according to their wishes. And then in verse 18, it says, But behold, this was an advantage to the Nephites, for it was impossible for the robbers to lay siege sufficiently long to have any effect upon the Nephites because of their much provision which they had laid up in store. When I read about that, I couldn't help but think about the situation that we have found ourselves in in the last six months or so. We have this pandemic. So much of our normal ways that we are spiritually fed have been, quote, cut off to us, not to mention all of the other intense things going on around the world. I have felt like Satan is surrounding us spiritually, trying to cut us off and take away the things that keep us safe and spiritually healthy. And I think that he would have been so much more successful if the Lord hadn't prepared us for this situation. The church was so perfectly and divinely prepared. The church was never reactive in any of this. Here are some of the things that we were prepared with. The church was prepared to deal with this circumstance. He had us practicing and getting used to a home-centered church. Come follow me. He shortened church by an hour, and we learned to do home-centered church the year before we unexpectedly had no other option. Can you imagine the spiritual ramifications for so many people in the church if it wasn't in place and we had to scramble as a church to figure out a unified curriculum to keep everyone spiritually fed. This program was inspired so that this could be a peaceful, natural transition, preventing the chaos that wouldn't have allowed for as much spiritual growth as I believe we have experienced. I know that I have experienced spiritual growth because of this. He So next one, he started a new ministering program, giving us new flexibility on how we reach out to people. Who knew that there would be a time when we weren't supposed to go to people's houses? He did. That's who knew. And then in May 2019, the First Presidency discontinued the policy that couples had to wait a year if they were married civilly. And look how important that policy change has been in a time when temples have been closed. We have been prepared by adding technology into how missionaries conduct their work. 
And now that is more vital than ever for current missionary work. We didn't miss a beat in missionary work because the Lord already had a plan. Last year, the church gave missionaries more options to communicate with their families. I can imagine how important that contact has been for those missionaries with the current circumstances because they, I think a lot of them feel so isolated during this pandemic and being able to communicate with their families has allowed them to function so much better than they would have otherwise. There are so many ways the church was prepared for this. It is a testimony builder. The Lord is leading his church actively. And I'd like to think that it has been impossible for Satan to cut us off sufficiently long to have any effect on those who are relying on the Savior, like the Nephites, because of the preparation which was directed by the Lord through our living prophet. Next, the Gadiantans got very weak because they were starving. The Nephites are able to keep going out and attacking them and winning because the Gadiantans are so weak. They're eventually able to kill their leader, Zarahemna, and hang them, hang him at the top of a tree until he was dead, and then they cut the tree down. And that sounds gruesome. <laughs> um, but after that, there were was what sounds like a ton of relief and rejoicing. I can't imagine how it would feel to be fighting for so long, and now it's over. In chapter 4, verse 30, it says, And they did rejoice and cry again with one voice, saying, May the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob protect his, this people in righteousness, so long as they shall call on the name of their, of their God for protection. And it came to pass that they did break forth all as one in singing and praising their God for the great thing which he had done for them in preserving them from falling into the hands of their enemies. Yea, they did cry Hosanna to the most high God and they did cry, blessed be the name of the Lord God almighty, the most high God. And their hearts were swollen with joy unto the gushing out of many tears because of the great goodness of God in delivering them out of the hands of their enemies. And they knew it was because of their repentance and their humility that they had been delivered from an everlasting destruction. Now it says back there, protect this people in righteousness so long as they shall call upon the name of their God for protection. How can we be protected now? We have been told over and over. Elder Holland said in his talk, Safety for the Soul, Quote, Brothers and sisters, God always provides safety for the soul, and with the Book of Mormon, he has again done that in our time. Remember this declaration by Jesus himself, Whosoever tre treasureth up my word shall not be deceived, and in the last day neither your heart nor your faith will fail you. Close quote. Treasure the Book of Mormon, and neither your heart nor your faith will fail you. In the Book of Mormon, there is safety. He has sent it for the protection of our souls. Elder Holland, in the same talk, bore a powerful testimony. It's a little long, but I'm going to read it because it is so good. For 179 years, this book has been examined and attacked, denied and deconstructed, targeted and torn apart like perhaps no other book in modern religious history, perhaps like no other book in any religious history, and still it stands. Failed theories about its origins have been born and parroted and have died. From Ethan Smith to Solom Solomon Spaulding, to deranged paranoid to cunning genius. 
None of these frankly pathetic answers for this book has ever withstood examination because there is no other answer than the one Joseph gave as its young unlearned translator. In this I stand with my own great-grandfather, who said simply enough, No wicked man could write such a book as this, and no good man would write it unless it were true and he were commanded of God to do so. I testify that one cannot come to full faith in this latter-day work and thereby find the fullest measure of peace and comfort in these our times until he or she has embraced the divinity of the Book of Mormon and the Lord Jesus Christ of whom it testifies. If anyone is foolish enough or misled enough to reject 531 pages of a heretofore unknown text teeming with literary and semantic complexity without honestly attempting to account for the origin of those pages, especially without accounting for their powerful witness of Jesus Christ and the profound spiritual impact that witness that witness has had on what is now tens of millions of readers. If that is the case, then such a person, elect or otherwise, has been deceived. And if he or she leaves this church, it must be done by crawling over or under or around the Book of Mormon to make that exit. In that sense, the book is what Christ himself said said to be, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, a barrier in the path of one who wishes not to believe in this work. Witnesses, even witnesses who were for a time hostile to Joseph, testified to their death that they had seen an angel and handled the plates, and they had been they had been shown unto us by the power of God and not of man, they declared. Wherefore, we know of a surety that this work is true. Now, I did not sail with the brother of Jared in crossing an ocean, settling a new world. I did not hear King Benjamin speak his angelically delivered sermon. I did not proselyte with Alma and Amulek, nor witness the fiery death of innocent believers. I was not among the Nephite crowd who touched the wounds of the resurrected Lord, nor did I weep with Mormon and Moroni over the destruction of an entire civilization. But my testimony of this record and the peace it brings to the human heart is as binding and unequivocal as theirs. Like them, I give my name unto the world to witness unto the world that which I have seen, and like them, I lie not, God bearing witness of it. I ask that my testimony of the Book of Mormon and all that it implies given today under mine own oath and office, being recorded by men on earth and angels in heaven, I hope I have a few years left in my last days, but whether I do or not, I want it absolutely clear when I stand before the judgment bar of God that I declared to the world in the most straightforward language I could summon that the Book of Mormon is true, that it came forth the way Joseph said it came forth, and it was given to bring happiness and hope to the faithful in the travail of the latter days. Close quote. You wonder how you can survive this time? How you can bear to live in a time with when this heaviness and evil is all around? I know I've felt it in the last few months. If we aren't relying on the Savior, it will crush us. And the Savior can be found in the Book of Mormon. Elder Holland also said, quote, The Savior warned in the last days that even those of the covenant, very, the very elect, could be deceived by the enemy of truth. If we think of this as a form of spiritual destruction, it may cast light on another Latter-day prophecy. Think of the heart as a figurative center of our faith, the poetic, the poetic location of our loyalties and our values. Then consider Jesus' declaration that in the last days, 
men's heart shall fail them. Men's heart shall fail them. We are seeing that. But he has given us the Book of Mormon. I was sitting on my bed preparing today, reading of the Nephites with their hearts swollen with joy unto the gushing out of many tears because of the goodness of God and delivering them out of the hands of their enemies. And my heart was swollen with joy unto the gushing of many tears because of the goodness of God. For the amazing opportunity I was given to be born of parents who already knew the gospel and taught it to me that I have the Book of Mormon in my life, that I get to understand why I am here and what I should be doing. It is such an amazing blessing, and I don't know why I got to have it and so many others don't. So I will not squander it. To the best of my mortal ability, I understand the gravity of the awful situation here on earth. And I am so grateful that the Lord has provided protection for my soul and the souls of my children through the Book of Mormon. Don't forget to take advantage of it in these times. It can bring peace to your mind and safety to your soul. I love that the Nephites acknowledged their responsibility that allowed for that protection, humility, and repentance. After this point, it says, And now, behold, there was not a living soul among all the people of the Nephites who did doubt in the least the words of all the holy prophets. They have Gadianton prisoners, and they preach the gospel to them. And any that would repent of their sins and enter into a covenant that they would murder no more were set free. I find it amazing that this is what their attitude was to people who would cause so much death and pain to their own people. On Facebook this week, I saw a thread, and it's a religious group that I follow, um, and I saw this thread about praying for the people on the West Coast of the United States who were affected by fires. In the comments, there were a couple of really disturbing comments that, in essence, said it serves them right, they're being punished by God. And these people are talking about fellow citizens of the United States. And as I read those comments, I was so disturbed. Catch yourself if you are thinking this way. It is not our job to judge anyone. That is God's job. Bad things happen to the wicked and to the righteous. Our only job is to love them and serve them, to bear our testimonies and share the gospel. We learned a couple of episodes ago that God is giving us as much time as possible to repent and come to him. He has lengthened out our time in relation to his as a mercy so that we can repent. Sometimes I know that I catch myself thinking, let's get this show on the road. I want the savior to come as soon as possible. And I do think that it's okay to yearn for the savior to be here. But as things intensify here on earth and prophecies are fulfilled, let's pray that people are humbled and turned to the Lord. Let's pray that some of these things, these bad things that are happening, can bring some of them to repentance. Never rejoice because we think that they got what was coming to them. Do you think that the Lord is doing anything but weeping for any souls that are lost? Souls that have the same worth as your soul or mine? Don't forget that. Let's pray for every soul that needs it to find God, to be humble, to rely on him. 
Let's go and do whatever we feel called by him to do because we, like he said in Peter 3, 9, should be long-suffering toward those around us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come unto repentance. So several years pass in righteousness and we get Mormon interjecting. And he says, and there had been... And there had many things transpired, which in the eyes of some would be great and marvelous. Nevertheless, they cannot all be written in this book. Yea, this book can, cannot contain even a hundredth part of that what was done among so many people in the space of 20 and five years. He continues to boldly say in verse 13, Behold, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I have been called of him to declare his word among His people, this people that they might have everlasting life. We have all been called as missionaries during the, during these last days. You can apply that statement Mormon said to yourself. You are a disciple of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and you have been called of him to declare his word among among his people that they might have everlasting life. Mormon concludes his interjection by saying that God will gather us. And in verse 26 he says, "And then they shall know their redeemer, who is who is Jesus Christ, the Son of God." And then shall they be gathered in from the four quarters of the earth and unto their own lands from whence they have been dispersed. Yea, as the Lord liveth, so shall it be. Amen. We are being gathered in our own land. The organization of the church is the gathering. So now that the Gadiantans are defeated, the Nephites return to their own lands and even the repentant Gadiantans are given land. And there was great peace and order. In verse chapter 6, verse 5, it says, And now there was nothing in all the land to hinder the people from prospering continually, except they should fall into, trans, into transgression. So let's see if they fall into transgression. They have three years of peace, and then there starts to be contention. They start to be distinguished by rank and wealth and chances of learning. Does that sound familiar? Some were prideful and some were still very humble and penitent before God. So there is great inequality. So the church began to be very divided, except some of the Lamanites who would not depart from it. It says they were firm, steadfast, and immovable, willing with all diligence to keep the commandments. It says in chapter 6, verse 18, Now they, meaning the wicked Nephites, did not sin ignorantly for they knew the will of God concerning them for it had been taught unto them therefore they did willfully rebel against God who are you more like and i think that we can be like one or the other in different situations of our life in some situations we might be being righteous but then we have other areas of our life that we really need to work on and it's a question we should all take very seriously are we more like the Lamanites who are firm, steadfast, immovable, willing with all diligence to keep the commandments? Even though wickedness is becoming more and more acceptable, even though we are criticized? Or are you more like the wicked Nephites? Really think of your thoughts. Are you defiantly sinning against God with a full knowledge of his will for you? Are you so wrapped in anger toward the world that the love inside you is trapped? Are you actively justifying sin because everyone is doing it and the world tells you that it's fine? 
Is your pride keeping you from seeing that you are being carefully led by the father of all lies? Is your heart hard? These are hard questions to honestly ask and honestly answer, but ask them and ask the Savior to soften your heart so that you can change if necessary. When you are close to the Savior, you can see right through it. You can tell what is light and what is dark, and you can allow him to lead you where you should go. So prophets come to the Nephites and testify boldly of Christ, and the people are angry, and they put these brave prophets to death before the judges could stop it since that was against the law, and the wicked conspired to undermine and destroy the government and let the powerful go when they commit crime to destroy the people and also to destroy the people of the Lord. They start to divide into tribes, and only about six years go by, and most of the people have turned from righteousness. And a new group starts to form, and they appoint a new leader named Jacob. He was one of the main voices that had spoken up against the prophets. And this group was still, although it had gained some power, it was still much smaller than the main body of the people. So this group went north and began to build a kingdom and be joined by dissenters. And their plan was to wait until they were large enough to fight against the main body of people. The main body of people were divided into tribes, and they didn't all have the same laws. But they were united in that they wouldn't go to war against each other. So in that way, they're they're together. But as a whole, they were wicked and still stoning the prophets. In chapter 7, verse 15, it says, It came to pass that Nephi, having been visited by angels and also the voice of the Lord, therefore having seen angels and being eyewitness and having had the power given unto him that he might know concerning the ministry of Christ, I'm going to pause really quick right there. The power given unto him that he might know concerning the ministry of Christ. To me, that makes me think he's seeing visions and actually getting to see Christ in his ministry over in Israel, which I think sounds so cool to be able to be an eyewitness, eyewitness to that. And also being an eyewitness to their quick return from righteousness to their wickedness and abominations. Therefore, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts and the blindness of their minds, Nephi went forth among them in that same year and began to testify boldly repentance and remission of sins through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 18, it says, And it came to pass that they were angry with him, even because he had greater power than they, for for it were not possible that they could disbelieve his words. For so great was his faith on the Lord Jesus Christ that angels did minister unto him daily. Think about that. It were not possible that they could disbelieve his words. He performed miracles. He cast out devils. He even raised his brother from the dead and the people saw it. And they were angry because of his great power. Despite these great miracles, only a few were converted. Imagine how hard your heart has to be to know that what Nephi is saying is true and yet you refuse. After a little bit, Nephi has more success in the next year and more were converted. So I don't know about you, but I have a little bit of whiplash from all of that. Wicked, righteous, wicked, righteous. And like Mormon said in Helaman 12, 1, and thus we can now behold how, and thus we can behold how false and also the unsteadiness of the hearts of the children of men. Yea, we can see that the Lord in his infinite, great infinite goodness doth bless and prosper those who put their trust in him. 
It is so important that we trust and cling to the Savior in these difficult days. And where can we find the fullness of his gospel? In the Book of Mormon. When we call on him for protection, like the Nephites did against the Gadiatans, he will protect us. And one of the most important tools for protection he has given us is the Book of Mormon. In its pages, there is safety and peace. I add my testimony to Elder Holland's. I ask that my testimony of the Book of Mormon and all that it implies be recorded by men on earth and angels in heaven. I want it absolutely clear when I stand before the judgment bar of God that I declare to the world in the most straightforward language I could summon that the Book of Mormon is true and that it came forth the way that Joseph said it came forth and was given to bring happiness and hope. And may I add safety to the faithful in these difficult days. Thank you for listening to me. Before I started recording this, right as I was shutting my bedroom door, my husband said, you have any jokes today? (laughs) And I don't. So hopefully you guys can feel my sincerity and be okay with the fact that I'm not really a jokester. (laughs) And I hope that you feel inspired to share this with someone who you think could use a little bit more safety and peace from the Book of Mormon in their life. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you in a couple of days when I have this week's Come Follow Me episode prepared.